Hey gang, welcome to episode 160 of the No Pristinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from No Pro headquarters in Los Angeles. And as always, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Meow Wolf down in Santa Fe, New Mexico, worldwide. Um, okay, <laughs> I'm particularly cheery tonight. I've got a new tattoo. Uh, it's only an airbrushed tattoo. I was down at the ink hole last night in Hollywood, uh, which is a, a filthy den of ill repute and felt. Uh, it's a new pop-up for the film The Happy Time Murders, uh, which is made by Brian Henson. Uh, Brian Henson, of course, the son of Jim Henson. They've, they've had a, a, a show here in L.A. for a while called Puppet Up, um, which I've never gotten to see. And it's basically, um, it's, I, I don't want to say the M word, because uh, there's probably some legal ramifications around saying it, so we'll just say it is it is it is dirty, dirty puppets. And as someone who grew up on um, uh, that M word show uh, and the M word movie and the M words take Manhattan and uh, <laughs> M word Chris, I'm just going to do that forever. Um, uh, for someone who grew up through it all, M-word babies. Um, okay, you know who I am. You probably even know which one's my favorite or which, which three are my favorites um, and the ranked choices. Um, but uh, there, there's something about Filthy Puppets. I'm just, I'm just going to say there's something about Filthy Puppets. Uh, I was on a blackjack winning streak. I think I was up 3,000 at one point. It's fake money. It only happens when it's fake money. But there was a point where if I had walked away from that table, uh, I think no proscenium would have been self-funded. <laughs> so what I'm saying is someone needs to stake me. Um, <laughs> a Kickstarter to send Noah to Vegas. Um, I don't gamble for a reason. And last night was evidence of that. Anyway, um, that was a little unexpected report. If uh, you were lucky enough to snag one, or I don't know if they're going to do a standby line, but it's definitely the kind of thing where you just go, man, I wish something like this existed all the time. And I didn't even get to see everything. Okay, so that's why you hear a lot of chipperness in my voice right now, because I was hanging with puppets last night. At one point, uh, at one, point uh, uh, one of the puppets... <laughs> Learned that Dr. Drew Binsky, uh, as in Loveline Dr. Drew, uh, was in the house. He learned it from Twitter, and he got really excited and was just demanding that they bring Dr. Drew to him. They did, in fact, bring Dr. Drew to him. So if you look on the in my personal Instagram, you will see a photo where I'm like looking up because they're like right over my head as they're taking their photos. Uh, just, just another night. Just another night in Hollywood. <laughs> it's a weird life, y'all. It's a weird, weird life. And just, just for the record, I was way more excited about meeting puppets than I was about the fact that Dr. Drew was there. The puppets were really excited that Dr. Drew was there. And 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 the dealer at the 21 table, like, I feel bad for her because she definitely wanted a selfie. She was like, he's my crush. And, like, she took her hair down. And then he walked away. And I was like, oh, I felt so bad for her. I was just quiet the entire time because I was winning and I was like not gonna, I was just like, 
this shutting up thing works for me, I'm just going to keep winning here. Um, Shannon McGrew caught me uh, of Nightmarish Conjuring. She caught she caught me at the table. Uh, she has a photo on her on on her feeds. Um, you don't you don't you don't come to the show. I guess you do. Some of you do. For those of you who are here because Jeff Worth is our guest, you're like, whoa, man, what the hell is this? You're talking about filthy puppets. Hey, in the spirit of play, in the spirit of playfulness. Uh, Jeff Worth, who is uh, the director of the Interactive Play Lab, he is our guest this week. I'm going to set that up a little more firmly after a few other things because it's just it's a busy time, it's a busy week, and Jeff deserves my full attention when we start setting up. But I want to draw your attention to the middle ring for a second here and talk to you about what's on the site this week, just really quickly. We've got an interview with uh, the with Nathan and Stephanie of the Firelight Collective. They're taking their show, Stars in the Night, to New York City. This is very exciting for us here in Los Angeles because it is it is the first time, I think, in a while that one of our LA shows, and it might be the first time one of our LA immersive shows has, I mean, in like at least a decade, um, has ported itself fully uh, to New York. We've had New York folks come out here. You know, Siobhan O'Loughlin brought broken bone bathtub out here uh and and of course there's always you know reports that like something big will come out of a company that works in new york but this is the first time we've actually had a show take itself up and take it they're going to be down in dumbo i loved this show uh last year i was i was very very enthusiastic about what lies at the heart of it uh you can check out my review if you want uh i I don't know what's going to change as part of its new york run but those uh that run is up go check out uh on the site you know you'll be able to find it uh linked off it'll definitely be in this week's everything immersive this week um check it out give it a whirl uh get a get a taste of what la talent is right there in new york you didn't even have to fly out also out of New York City, uh, Catherine put together 25 creators and companies to watch in NYC. Very excited that we have this on the site right now. I can also tell from the reaction that all of you are very excited. Uh, and I'm sitting and going like, oh, why didn't we do this sooner? Um, so expect one for Los Angeles uh, soon enough. Uh, we'll be spreading that around. Um, in fact, I'll probably be like, you know, slamming it together over the weekend. Like, oh my God, this is popular. We'll do it. Um, so and and we definitely want to give uh, we want to give props to everybody. Uh, coming up, uh, you're gonna have my little write up on the ink hole. Uh, we also got a review of Kansas Collection. The Vow is coming together. Uh, I caught a preview of it uh, the other night, and I'm gonna catch uh, another track on it tonight. And so uh, tomorrow, uh, that would be Saturday. I am gonna uh, have all the materials I need to do a really good write up on the Vow. I've already started on it, and short form. Um, you should catch the show if you're in Los Angeles. Uh, do not worry if you haven't seen any of the parts of the Vow yet, uh, not the Vow, of the Kansas Collection. You can jump in. There is a, a total newbies track uh, that they've got. They've got it arranged so that you buy tickets to separate tracks. Uh, don't let that deter you. Uh, there's actually a couple of tracks uh, that are very easy to jump on uh, without much prior knowledge. Um, like so long as you know that like it's Oz and there's a woman named Dorothy. She killed the witch. <laughs> there's, there's a lion, a scarecrow and a tin man. You're going to be okay. Um, I nearly did Lyman's voice. It's impossible not to when you're talking about that show. Anyway, more on that after the break, after the break, after the interview, the break, look at me. I'm terrible. Hey, one more bit of business before I set up Jeff Worth. Um, Patreon. 
We're doing the campaign thing right now. We're getting back on the campaign trail. We have 168 backers right now. I want to get that number up to 175. I'd like to get that number up to 175 this week, which would be like seven more. That'd be one a day. That's not impossible. Look, it comes down to this. I'm going to get done with doing this podcast open and close, and then I'm going to go to the day job. And look, the day job is there's rewarding work and it keeps me alive. Um, But every minute I'm there, I know I could be here. I could be working for you guys. I could be working with the community, be doing stuff for Leia. I could be doing stuff on NoPro. I could be just answering questions. A lot of people have questions and I wish I had time to answer everyone's and go out there and do the meetings and all the things that you do. Um, But... uh, we are not self-sustaining. Uh, Meow Wolf helps us out greatly, uh, which is good. Uh, we're, we're, we're saving that up for a rainy day. <laughs> we're being very strategic with our, with our resources here. Um, we want to do more and better all the time. I'd like to be able to pay Catherine one day. <laughs> um, and as we all know, publishing is dead and we turn to you. So patreon.com slash no proscenium is where you go and help. If everyone who used everything immersive as a resource put in a buck a, day, a, buck a month, uh, we'd probably be self-sustaining. So if you're one of those people, if you know those people, just encourage. I mean, this is the point where just you know, real talk, um, $12 a year is is cheaper than you know a subscription to The Atlantic and uh, we're not going to publish some of the junk they publish. So there you go. Oh, did I just uh, get have my subscription to The Atlantic Renew? And then they published a bunch of stories. And I was like, wow, that's reprehensible. Uh, yeah, yeah, it did. It did. Um, and, and it went up. And so I'm like, I'm really not happy. Because um, I'm thinking about subscriptions. And you know the way my brain works. It jumps from topic to topic. This week, joining everyone who's like, oh, I'm not giving this guy any money. Um, this week, joining us on our crusade to change the world is Nicole Coati, Jonathan Irons, and Alexa Roan. Uh, if I butchered your names, I'm sorry. Uh, shout out to everyone who's getting their quarterly care package. I am putting those together slowly but surely. I may mail them out in waves because uh, I'm able to like make a couple of them and then do. But I, I kind of want to just go in one big push. Uh, so those are coming soon. Uh, I will, I've got time set aside this weekend to get, get done. It's supposed to be done last weekend and then things interfered. The sustaining backers for no proscenium are, wow, those puppets. I guess I did a lot of sugar last night. Actually, I'm totally off the sugar. Oh, that's what it is. I've detoxed from sugar. So now my energy is back up. Okay, that's cool. Um, the sustaining backers for No Persinium are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Arthur Tubman, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. Swear to God, I'm not on anything. I'm just high on felt. Okay. <laughs> also, you, you can't touch the puppets. Dr. Drew got to touch the puppets, but us normal humans don't get to touch the puppets. Um <laughs> And I think there's a champagne room, but uh, I didn't get to go into it. Um, okay, let's talk about Jeff Worth. A couple of weeks ago, uh, myself, uh, Brian Bishop, uh, Fiona Renee, uh, Paige Keen, who is part of the Deep Dive team, these are people who I know, and a bunch of improvisers who I, I don't, uh, a guy, a dude named Ross, who I've, I've met before, whose name, last name I can't remember, sorry, Ross, um, but who's been to our workshops. Uh, the, uh, 
that and like like 20 other people who I just did not know from Adam uh, took this, which is exciting, uh, took this class in Los Angeles with Jeff Worth of the Interactive Play Lab. Um, Jeff, uh, last last year, yes, yeah, last year, uh, famously did the deep dive in Austin, where like this for months on end, they were working on uh, this these, these long deep dive projects. It was sort of a master class for interactive and immersive. Um, this workshop he did uh, was sort of a short form version of some some longer workshops that he does, and it was tuned to improvisers, but it was all about interactive performance and about the build the fundamental building blocks of interactive performance as Jeff understands it. And I was completely enthralled by this workshop, if for no other reason than the what I saw were so many techniques that were familiar to me from my own improv training and my own improv training goes back to high school. Um, I was, I was sort of raised by a just John Stonian improviser, uh, in, in high school, uh, permanently imprinted Bobby Wineapple from the Bay area. Uh, he was both my journalism and my theater teacher, which explains me completely. Uh, yeah, yeah. High school teachers, they have a huge impact on people's lives. Shout out to Taylor Thorne, who just started her 11th grade class. Uh, not in it, teaching it. Um, so I expect a lot of cosplayers to come out of that school is what I'm saying. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Kidding. Not kidding. Um, I'm really all over the place this morning. This coffee is great. Um, you take improvisational techniques and you turn them about 45 degrees and you get what Jeff is doing. And it's that perspective, that paradigm, that makes all the difference in the world. Because what the, the approach he has is essentially, in a nutshell, boils down to how do you get people to improvise, to, to co-create an experience with you when they don't know the rules of experience creating of improvisation and he has the tools for that and that is freaking amazing um jeff is kind of this wandering sage of interactive experience making and we're completely lucky to have him in the community as a whole and like whatever city he comes to next. I mean, this is like Kwai Chan Kane in Kung Fu, man. Like if Jeff Worth shows up in your town and, and he's putting together a little something and you're a creative, you need to make sure you go do it. You just, you just do. All right. There. High praise. Yeah. Um, here's this wonderful soul. Um, here's another one for our record books. Ladies and gentlemen, our interview with Jeff Worth, the director of the Interactive Play Lab. Here you go. So Jeff, for people who don't know what the Interactive Play Lab is, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if we could sort of start there and then we'll kind of bang around in the traditional no proscenium fashion and sort of get a, a full feel for what this short thing you're about to say actually means. <laughs> the Interactive Play Lab is a sandbox in which I get to explore 
research and develop applied interactive story and performance technique with cool people all across the country. Now, I just had the, the pleasure of taking a class you just did here in Los Angeles. It's a short little workshop you did this morning. Um, and one of the things that was interesting, or that will be interesting for our audience is, uh, and it's funny because it's sort of the thing I always hate, which is someone asked you like how you define immersive and how you define interactive. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's my least favorite question, but you had one of my favorite answers, so I wonder if you could share that with the class, please. <laughs> <laughs> sure. For me, I'm not saying this is for anybody else, right. but for me, immersive is being in the world of the story, but not necessarily co-creating it. The way in which you can have a participation within it may be moving from one place to another. That how you put together what the story is, is kind of like being an editor. Oh, I saw the scene in the forest, and then I walked over to the place where the bathtub was, and I saw this amazing dance that happened there. So in a way, you're serving like an editor in this space that surrounds you, the story world surrounds you. Whereas interactive work in my book is anything where an unrehearsed participant becomes a co-creator of the narrative experience. You've been and this is one of the things that we were talking about at lunch and then we sort of stopped because uh, we didn't want to get too far in it. You've been, you've been working this world for a while now and almost it feels like there's almost like two acts uh, of, of this because you first started exploring this idea of interactive, um, I guess, I mean, I guess as early as the 70s. Yeah. Um, and then you wrote a book in 94. Mm-hmm. And then you picked this work up again later on. I wonder if you could sort of give us a, a bit of the history of, of how you came to working in interactive and then sort of the, the renaissance part of it as well. We'll get to the renaissance in a minute. <laughs> we'll do the first, first run and then we'll do the renaissance. Yeah. It makes sense, I guess. Um, I think I've always at heart been an interactor. Mm that the idea of engaging someone else in the, their capacity to play has always been there. And it began in high school where I wrote a show where I addressed the audience. And one night somebody spoke back. And in my mind, I thought, that's pretty cool. What would happen if you wrote a show where they had to speak back? And did that, and that was pretty cool too. And that led to, well, why do they have to stay out in the seats? Why couldn't they come up on stage? And that was also really fun. And then it was like, well, why does this happen to happen on stages? Why couldn't it happen out in real-life environments? So there was a whole progression that was happening like that. Um, But I also was paying a lot of attention to what mattered to me, to the things that I was curious and interested in. So I was... I applied to uh, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Combined Shows Incorporated Clown College, and I got accepted because I wanted to get more physical training. Mm. And then I got into the circus as a clown, and I thought, you know, if I'm a clown, the joke should be at my expense, not that of the audience. Mm. So how do I make it so that they have power over me, not I have power over them? Mm. Years later, I was an exhibition ballroom dancer with my sister, and 
learned about backleading, which is what a woman does when she dances with a guy who doesn't know how to dance. How long did she have to do that? No, <laughs> <laughs> Quite a while. <laughs> and that idea of being able to make it possible for someone to do what they don't think they're capable of doing without realizing that you're the one who's helping make them capable of doing that. This idea of backleading, this idea of of the power dynamic mm-hmm. resting with the audience. I wonder if we could like cut right into that because I feel that's that's a heart of what a lot of the the drills that we were doing in the class today were sort of aimed towards and I suspect it's part of the foundation of what you do in the interactive deep dives where though that the, the value like how did you come to that being an important value for so many people the point of entering into a performance life the point of becoming a writer or a director is that they it's like I want to be heard I have this thing I got to say I want the world to know I want people to die with my name on their lips because I was so fantastic like that 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 egomaniacal need to like press on people's brains and this is the inverse of that this is like I want to unlock not exactly that capacity of someone else but I want to unlock your agency mm-hmm. when did how did that enter the picture where did that I think it was always just a philosophical grounding for me mm. and maybe a bit of ego that it doesn't take a whole lot of finesse to practice a whole lot until you look brilliant and then get up in front of people and look brilliant. Mm. It takes a lot of finesse to make it so that it doesn't look like you're doing anything and other people look brilliant. That that, that feeds me mm. to see, not that I made that happen, but I made the context within which that was possible. It's the difference between a a high school person and a parent. High school people go, look at me, look at me, look what I can do, aren't I amazing? And once you have a child, it's no longer, look at me, it's this is another life. How do I make it so that that life resonates, rocks, rolls, shows up in ways that maybe I never could show up? Mm. So I think it's just a different season in terms of a perspective about what feeds you. That idea around unlocking that for other people, how they, how they show up, it's, we, were, we were talking a bit uh, about my old LARPing days, and that, that idea in co-creation of can you, can you get someone to find what they didn't know about their own imagination. Yeah. Yeah. And you absolutely can. Like the, the single biggest obstacle to that is their fear. Mm. Fear of being wrong, fear of looking stupid, fear of messing up what you've got going. Mm. If you can get people past that fear. Does that start with, with the performers, the creators, the, the, the instigators? Oh, I almost want to call the instigators, right? <laughs> like when we're talking about an immersive and interactive piece, the instigators. Does it start with the instigators getting over their own fear of, 
of what's right and wrong in terms of not necessarily in terms of like, well, now I'm going to like drop a load of bricks on someone's head, but but in terms of um, letting go of of that uh, maybe like the need for praise or for being seen as clever or or for yeah, you're nodding your head, so you think. <laughs> you, 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 the, you take the field on, on there. Um, there are plenty of great teachers who still wrestle with their own demons. Mm. So I don't know how critical it is. I think it probably makes it easier to help others do it if you have found a way to get past it yourself. Mm. But you know, there are plenty of great choreographers who wouldn't ever step foot on stage as a dancer that still do a great job of helping dancers become better dancers. So I don't know if there's a requirement, but yeah, it makes it a hell of a lot easier <laughs> if, you, uh, if you aren't carrying a bunch of baggage because then it gives you room to be able to carry someone else's. Right. That makes sense. Also that idea that, you know, you can, you can still guide someone even if... I mean... I mean in a sense, to go back to the, the, the idea of the parent, right? I mean, you hope that as a parent or as an instructor, you hope that the next generation grows beyond your limitations, that right. the, the lessons you learned and the points where you failed, you can pass on the lesson of like, here's, here's where the work stopped for me. I want to take you right up to that point so you can carry on right. the mission. Because the only thing that is a failure is if you didn't learn something. Mm. So it makes it so that you don't have failures if there are actually ways for there to be something learned to be carried forward beyond you. Now, you wrote a book on interactive performance Mm -hmm. back in 94. Right. Um, Was that sort of the, the culmination of everything up to that point? And then did you, how long did you sort of step away? Because I know that you went to like into the software world for a while. So like, was there, was there a gap or was this always just in the, shaking your head, so always in the background? It, yeah, there, there, wasn't, there wasn't a stepping away from interactive. Okay. It was just, it also included software programming and <laughs> other things as well. Yeah. And you mentioned to someone who in the class today was saying, you know, coming from a tech side, you said, think of what, we're doing is algorithms, right? Um, I wonder. I wonder for for the folks who maybe don't have the, as much of the technical background, like how how does like interactive performance technique? How is it similar to what an algorithm would be for for programming? We're ultimately, kind of there's a place we're fishing towards. Mm-hmm. This is not. <laughs> I, you can probably guess where it's going, but maybe we can start. If you think of an algorithm as a box into which something comes. And then something happens inside that box, and something comes out the other side. And that is a lot of what the interactive technique is about, is that there is something that you receive. There are processes that you run it through, frequently subconsciously, if you've moved to the place where it no longer has to be in your brain. Mm. And then something comes out. And it's not guaranteed. It's not locked it's much more like gambling where mm. you can shave the dice if you can shave the dice you don't guarantee that you're always going to roll what you need but you play long enough and you can play in a way that will make the outcomes be in the direction that you want them to be interesting really interesting so 
you always know there's the element of risk of that it, oh, well, this could go wrong. Like, they were, we're, look, we're looking for a particular effect, but we know that we won't always achieve it. But what can we do to sort of stack the decks, mm-hmm. slam the table, mm-hmm. so that we've got a better chance at pulling the effect we want? Yeah, and it's not that it could go wrong. It's that it could go differently. Mm. Like Charlie Parker, when he used to play in New York would be playing and it was a off of I don't know off of some main street that where there were a lot of cars outside honking their horns and the other musicians would always complain because it was messing up with messing the sets and Charlie would just treat those horns as though they were a part of the set hmm. that you reframe what is wrong to simply be that is what is and suddenly you've got a means by which to play a much more robust and rich Thing that is present to everything that is there. You talked in class in terms of not rules but tools. Yeah. I wonder if you can kind of expand upon sure. that a little. Yeah. I, I see a lot of people looking for rules because they want something that's going to be a recipe, a formula, mm. a thing to go, if you do A and B, then C will happen. And I think that's a misperception of, of the world. Mm. I think that if you do A and B, there may be a likelihood that C will happen, but no guarantee. And I also have <laughs> a fair amount of my approach has come from things that I didn't like about the ways that I was taught. And the idea of going, this is a rule. And I would say, well, how do you... You know, but th- clearly this rule isn't doesn't apply all the time. How do you know when that is? And it's like, well, once you get good enough, and I'm well, how do you know when you're good enough? Well, and th- and there was no answer. <laughs> and the idea of rules is that they are things you either follow or you break. Right. And those are automatons. You know that those are not. That's not a creative process. Yeah, it's a binary process. It's right. one to zero. Yeah. And so you either wind up with people who follow the rules and follow the rules and follow the rules, and it doesn't work all the time, or you've got people who break the rules, and that doesn't also that that doesn't necessarily make it work anymore. Right. So it's how do you find the tools? How do you find the thing that you go given this circumstance, given who this person is, who I am, what is something that can be used that will make this more likely to happen in a way that is satisfying to both of us. And if you don't have a tool, then it's difficult to accomplish something. So if you're trying to take a a switch plate off of a light switch and you don't have a screwdriver, it's really difficult to do. I mean, you can get it off, but it's going to break the light switch. If you've got a Phillips head screwdriver, but it's a standard head screw, you're going to have a really difficult time still getting it off because you don't have the right tool. But if you've got the right tool, then it's a little easier. It's like, oh, okay, I can do this. And it doesn't mean that then when it's time to put in a nail, you're going to pull out your screwdriver because that's not the tool that you want to use. Right. So being able to provide people with a variety of tools that work for them, not that work, because there is no that work. There's stuff that works for different people. There are things that work for me because I am white and male and six foot tall that would not work as effectively for somebody that is not that demographic. So to go, here's the tool to use, I think 
is a mistake. I think here are tools that are available and then letting people really trust themselves, their own creative process, it makes it so that they, they are powerful so they can make others powerful. That idea of, of empowering people, that, that feels really inherent to the type of work you're doing in, that I'm seeing and that I hear about in, in terms of the deep dive, this f- focus on uh, spect, spect as you call them, and you have a little bit about like making sure to pronounce the T so that people don't feel infinitesimal, so it's not speck like a little, like a moat. Um, M-O-T-E, not M-O-A-T. Um, this is like the dumb version of this question, but I'll just say it. Uh, why, why is that important? I think that's, that's kind of underlying. Like There's this value underneath the work that I'm sensing about getting people to become these guides for other people, for them to discover their ability to co-create a world, mm-hmm. and that sort of implies co-creating the world. So is there a question? I don't know if there's a question. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it's like, it's, it's more of a comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, it's a question and a comment. Like, I'm, I'm sensing that. I'm... I'm how did you get there? Like, how did, was that, was it also something that was just always there? Was it something that part of the training? Like, there's so many things in, in, in the work that you're doing that I'm seeing. Like, I'm seeing traces of, like, you know, Johnstonian improv. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, we, I asked you at one point today, if, like, you knew, like, Carson's finer in Infinite Games. Of course you did. Like, there's, there's some fellow traveler sort of stuff that's, that's going on here. And I guess I'm sort of trying to, you know, examine examine my own philosophy of this stuff through the lens that you've that you've brought and I'm I'm trying to see is it is it weird but have I been indoctrinated? Is there is there this this is it is it this meme set that's in the world that's just kind of been perpetuated and we've we've sort of run into different virus strains of it or is this something that's come out of uh, a deep experience of the world and of sort of stumbling around the dark and, and finding these lines? It's come out of a deep pragmatism oh. that I, I look around and I go, who are the people that are making the world the way I would not wish to live in it? And they are people who are hungry for power, the people for whom the need to be told, you're the best, you are the man, you are the woman, you are the, the end-all, be-all, that they need that. Those folks tend to be graspy and tend to abuse people and tend to leave the world in a bit more disarray as a result of the way that they live. Mm-hmm. And the people who I see who leave it better are people who know that they've got everything they need, regardless of how much they have. And when you have that, when you know that you've got everything you need, and then you have the room to be generous, regardless of how much you have. Mm. And that kind of generosity, that kind of interest, it's like, it's great that people need to be heard. Cool. It's also great to be able to hear people. 
and to create context within which they can be heard, and especially within the cloak of fiction, mm. then that's, that's equally juicy. There's something about the way that, that fiction, fiction that, particularly fiction that bleeds into myth, gives us the ability to understand the world, not just, not just at a distance, but at a level of, of metaphor. Sort of the, the emotional truth to fiction often can almost like override the, the, the literal truth at times. I mean, we see that in the, in the great religions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like they're, they're, they're often so emotionally true that they reshape the world around us. Like that's the, the power of story at the end of the day. And that's the power of storytelling. Mm. The power of story living is a little, it's a variation on that. Okay, break that down. Okay. So storytelling, there's the teller and there's the listener. Story living, the listener is a part of the telling. That that's the co-creative process. And when you give people the permission to do that within fiction, where they don't have to own responsibility for anything that they do, I know that sounds a little counterintuitive because, like, well, wouldn't they just then do really awful things? Hmm. But the interesting thing is when you give people permission to be fictional they frequently are far more authentic than they are when they're trying to present themselves as they want to be seen. Someone in class was like, well, you're Westworlding people, <laughs> right? And then you had a riff after that point, which I, I think was about, because the, the focus there, of course, being, well, they're going to be awful. But then you had a riff about, but what's past the awful? Right, right. And if you want to have compassion, it's not just about having compassion for somebody who's nice. That's easy. Having compassion for somebody who's an absolute jerk? You kind of need to know what it is to be that absolute jerk in order to have any kind of compassion for that person. Hmm. So being able to give room for that to exist and then to go, what else lives within this jerk? There's more there. Have we lost something in our culture when it comes to the way we tell stories has has sort of the the immediacy of the internet the 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 tight chemical feedback loop of gaming has that has that messed up our our ability to find sympathy for the devil as it were and i'm thinking right now there's a, there's a there's a concrete example at the moment um, I'm going to break into something that you don't know anything about, probably, where there's a there's a hundred issue arc of Batman going on at the moment. Everyone's like, oh, rolling their eyes. I know you are. Um, and we're at the halfway point. And granted, the marketing around it hyped it up. It's like Batman was going to marry Catwoman. And of course, we're at the halfway mark of a hundred issue arc, and it was the wedding. So did the wedding take place? Of course not. Anyone who knows the rhythm of story knows you can't give us what we want right now. We're in the middle of the story. People sent death threats to the writer because he didn't give them what the marketing department said was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Even if anyone who knows story knows, well, I can't in the middle of the story give you the happy ending, mm-hmm. then I don't have a story anymore. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like we've just, we're, we live in a world where there's story everywhere 
and yet no one seems to know the rules or we've rejected the rules but maybe you can't reject the rules and we're living in a world that we are constantly co-creating mm-hmm. we're, we're living in a world of stories and we've forgotten forgotten the rules am, am I insane to be looking at it that way or, or well the thing to bear in mind is the rules that you're describing are really strongly influenced by western story mm. that I don't know that there are just blanket rules of story I think that there are definitely cultural influences that make us go well this is how story works and I think that people I think people have gotten a whole lot smarter about how story works because we are we have access to it in so many ways so many you know commercials now are stories mm-hmm. and they have been for a few decades and before they were simply advertisements so we get exposed to story in practically every aspect of our lives just because you are literate about story doesn't mean that you are smart about it that you you don't have to understand story in a way that makes sense in order to be but I want it now (laughs) I think that probably what you started with of the place of the rapid feedback loop is what what you're identifying yeah that but i want it now like the the marshmallow test do you know the marshmallow test i do know the marshmallow test but maybe not everybody does all right so a child is placed with this marshmallow on a plate with the uh, person conducting the study sitting across the table and says if you don't eat this marshmallow then in another three minutes you can have two marshmallows and then the person gets called out of the room so the child is left alone with that plate and the marshmallow. And there is this, certain kids immediately just grab the marshmallow and eat it. And I think that that's kind of, well, why didn't they get married now? Yeah. And there are those for whom the place of going, all right, I'm going to put my nose as close to the marshmallow as I can, but I'm not going to eat it. I'm going to tap on the desk as many times as I can, and I'm going to look at it, but I'm not going to eat it. Or I'm going to sing a song to myself. Like, they have strategies for being able to postpone gratification. Or I'm going to pop the marshmallow in my mouth and then pop it back out before they get in the room. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Suckers. <laughs> so, um. And the thing that's interesting is that the folks who, who had the strategies to deal with it, these children who had the strategies, it was a longitudinal study. Mm-hmm. Years later, those were the ones who had higher paying jobs, more job satisfaction, better relationships. Like our capacity to postpone gratification actually seems to have a correlation to the satisfaction of the things that matter to us in life. Yeah. That, that as a chocoholic, that terrifies me in so many ways. Because it's one of those things that once you've confronted with it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's... That feels right. That feels, that feels true. I mean, inevitably, there's back to probability. There's exceptions, right? Right. Like not a, not everyone's nope. going to be that way, and nope. some things can be unlearned, or some things can be compensated for. Yeah. But but there's there was this um, book that was really influential to me in the in the '90s. It's actually what got me to like. I only eat 
at a McDonald's like once every like <laughs> six years. It was called the McGlobalization of culture or society or something like that. And yeah. it was about a principle that the author framed as the irrationality of rationalization, with the idea being that um, rational industrial processes have have sped up our ability to get goods and services into people's hands. Mm-hmm. But, and the rational outcome of that should be that we have more leisure time to pursue. <laughs> you, you're, not, you're shaking your head and smiling at the same time. Um, <laughs> that everything should be easier because like the fundamentals of living are provided to us at a rapid pace. But in fact, that what actually happens is our patience shortens. Right. So we go from wanting fast food to wanting microwave food to wanting food that's already like cooked in the package and ready to go and there being zero. That we go from going to the bookstore to like wanting Amazon same day delivery. Right. You know, um, and, and that our patience gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. And this is an irrational fact brought on by rational processes mm-hmm. as if somehow the medicine was making us sick. Yeah. Um, some of this is all, all really heady stuff, but I, I feel like when we're talking about, we're talking about these sort of simple tools. Like what I'm interested in, in what you're doing is like you're kind of codifying some of the tools of interactive acting, mm-hmm. which applies to immersive acting as well because of the, the bleed right. in them. And... I wonder two things. One, from from whence have you drawn some of these tools for people who want to sort of do their own digging? Mm-hmm. Like what 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 minds should be they headed down into? And then once we've gone there, sort of looking casting forward, like sure. what are what are these practices readying ourselves for? Like I know you have uh, an answer for that. Uh, it's related to some of the other stuff we've already talked about, but. That's sort of that's our next act here. Yeah, it's a preview to everyone. So starting with the the sourcing, you know, where do where do you mine this? Where do you mine this stuff? Where 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 does an aspiring, you know, performer, teacher, go? Any place where people are being manipulated. (laughs) So you got a lot of places that you can go, and that word manipulation is loaded. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. but if you think about it, everything that we do is a kind of manipulation. You know, you wear a particular clothing because you want to be seen in a particular way by a particular person so that they will behave with you in a particular way. You eat a particular food because you think that it will have a particular impact upon your body that will make a life that you want to have. Everything that we're doing is some kind of manipulation. So if you get rid of the oh, manipulation is a bad thing, and go, it's just what we do as a species. It isn't literally, it just means handling something. Right. I'm, I'm, I manipul- I'm manipulating this toy in my hand right now. Mm-hmm. I'm handling it. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, there's a lot of really effective tool, tool sets out there that people have not looked at because, oh, God, that's bad. So brainwashing technique that the Japanese used on GIs, American GIs. Really effective technique for causing particular behaviors to show up in people that otherwise would not have shown up. Same thing in terms of selling used cars, that there are manuals out there that will tell you step by step 
how to make it so that a person will buy a car that is more expensive than they expected to pay and that they will walk away feeling good about having bought it, at least till they drive off the lot. So there are things out there that are manipulation for the purpose of the manipulator. Hmm. But these things, same tools can be used to affect a particular kind of behavior that empowers rather than victimizes the person on the receiving end of it. Yeah. There's a lot in, in the studies of uh, neuro-linguistic programming right. which can get used for things like marketing and used mm-hmm. car sales or like, you know, picking people up. But it was also it was developed initially as a form of talk therapy, as a way to get people to sort of short-circuit behaviors right. and get them into different behavior patterns. Um, and when you're talking about creating a fictional reality, right, this idea of like through language and and kinesthetic action, right. you can create a, a rapport that becomes the basis for a reality. And when we just look at it, you know, mm-hmm. in the abstract, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about creating fictional worlds out of thin air. And if you're doing narrative, you need something that a participant is going to care about. Mm. And the only thing that is real, really real, is the other human being. Mm. Even though they are playing a role, there is still a physical body that is, and an emotional state that is actually present there. And if you need somebody to take a step beyond their comfort zone, they darn well better have someone or something that they care about. And mm. so you need to be able to elicit really strong sense of connection. Because if you're going to tell a story, people are going to have to do things that are a little outside their comfort zone. And if it's just, oh, I'm doing this because I'm told to, that's them being put on a roller coaster to go on someone else's ride. Yeah. As opposed to, I'm doing this because I chose to. And now it's their own ride of their own design. And what they walk away with is not your story. It's the co-created story, which ultimately is the creative act. That the ultimate human creative act is producing a child. That's mm. not one person's thing. It's not the other person's thing. It's, it's the inter- intersection between two individuals. Mm. Frequently. Not yeah. always. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, science is giving us some permutations here. There you go. So, you yeah. Know, soon it'll be for one or for 15. <laughs> um, and hey, whatever floats your boat. Um, Where's this headed? Because there's the work you're doing right now is rooted in the live, mm-hmm. but for immersive, I, I always talk about immersive as having two sides: the coin. There's the physical and there's the digital. Yeah, and then I sort of use immersive as a as a blanket term to cover. Uh, the, the, the whole of these interrelated disciplines. So right. There's immersive, there's interactive, there's site-specific, there's we could go on for, for nine years. So the short the short form is is that, or I'll use Michael Targarver's open frame to this, mm-hmm. this thing. Like, it's this box that doesn't have any sides. How is it a box? That's the magic. Um, <laughs> so so what's, what's the destiny here? I don't know that I can say there is a destiny, 
like a single de- yeah right. one one destiny because you know we've had futurists forever telling us that we're going to have flying cars we don't <laughs> shit what did I just invest in uh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't invest in anything I have no money so. um, sorry so um, yeah we've been off off track plenty in terms of thinking what's coming that said the thing that I see that could come is the intersection of video games, brain scanning technology, and the idea of immersive story. And if we don't have people who know how to craft experiences that are based in story, not just in game theory. And game theory is great. It's it's a really highly studied and published field. So you can look at, okay, so leveling and badges and all those things, missions, all those things are really good motivators in the realm of game. And I know that there will be people who go, this isn't right. As a shorthand for a lay audience, games are things to be won or lost. Mm -hmm. And if you go to watch a production of Hamlet, and then at the end of Hamlet, you don't tend to go could we go back to the part where the sword fight was? Because I think that he could take out the king. The point of Hamlet is how it finishes in a way that is not a win. Mm. It's a transformation. Yeah. And that's the power of story. That's one of the things that I wonder if that's one of the things we've been losing in the culture as a whole is, is we're, we're factionalized we think in terms of win-loss. We think in terms of like the hero having the power and beating the villain. And yet those who are initiated into story know that the hero's journey is about transforming the hero. I think there was, I was reading someone talking about raiders lately, and the complaint was that like you could take Indiana Jones out of the story. It's not. I mean, the Nazis are going to open up the thing anyway. The 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 Ark does all the the work and kills all the Nazis, and it's like. The arc changes Indy. Indy starts that movie, and he's a jerk, and he's selfish, and he's the worst. Yeah. And by the end, he's a hero because of what he's endured. Right. And it's it's a very particular old type of story of, of the hero's just there. Just, it's noir. He's just there to get beat up on and get softened up by the world yep. so that you know that he's got a heart, that mm-hmm. even a hard man can have a heart. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we dropped Raiders of the Lost Ark a priori. With like, a Raider, like we took Raiders of the Lost Ark out of the universe and we dropped it in today, other than the fact that it's slow. And people would just come like, whatever. He didn't do anything at the end. He just stood there. <laughs> He's dumb. <laughs> you know? We, we feel, and like, or, or, like, or this idea that there has to be a, a, winner, a winner and a loser. When... And you're talking to probably the most hyper-competitive person you're ever going to meet. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I have a Monopoly board, right? Over here. No. <laughs> the, the reason that I don't play games is because I know that eventually there will always be somebody who's going to be better than me, who's going to beat me. And that makes me angry. Did you, did you throw game boards when you were a kid? Did you no. tip them over? Oh, no, no. I, 
that I'm more competitive than you. <laughs> <laughs> I just have more self-control than you. <laughs> I got over it. I got over it. I'm seeing a kid, not when you're an adult. I stopped that when I was seven. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah. So I so I looked for places in which the only way to win was for everyone to win. Mm. And that story. Yeah. Yeah. We're playing. We're playing. There's a there's a term in like LARPing, playing to lose, mm-hmm. like in the in the Nordic and the blockbuster LARPing, mm-hmm. like that idea. I I maybe because of those competitive instincts, like I twitch a little bit at the idea of losing. But this this idea of if it's it's cooperative, it's not it's not even you know, PVE player versus enemies. It's no. it's it's troop play. It's like we're all in this together. And we are all serving functions mm. within this thing that is narrative. That some people are the lieutenants, the people at the side, you know, who, who are there that have your back. Some people are the buddies who totally believe in you, and even though they can't really do anything to make it happen. Some people are the antagonists who are the stop signs to what you're trying to achieve. Some people are the contagonists who are the detour signs to what you're trying to achieve. That there are functions of story, that there is a joy in being a function within a greater thing that we are all a part of creating. And to be able to provide that opportunity for folks where it isn't about, it's all about me. Yeah. Yeah. There's something zen about this. Maybe I don't yeah. know. Yeah, like like there's like Zen. That's my shorthand for like blissful. Like there's this there's this perspective because it's ultimately it's rooted in the sense of play and co and co creation and play. I mean, it sort of a feeds back on itself. But if you're viewing things in terms of us, we're creating a story together. We're telling we're telling a story with yes. each other for each other, and you know it's almost like you can pass the hat on who's the protagonist, you know, and like for a moment I'm the protagonist and you're the antagonist. And I hadn't heard contagonist before and I mm. love that. Um, That's from Dramatica. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that I would... Yes, you can probably pass the protagonist. You're making it a heck of a lot more difficult to tell a story that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a sense in which like in, in if you think... To, to flip over to games, right, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and in the sense of ludonarrative, mm-hmm. in like a massively multiplayer role-playing, or or in the sense of like a, a very large LARP. Yep. You know, everyone's everyone's the protagonist of their own story. You know, whether or not there's a, a master narrative that everyone gets involved in is, or or a meta narrative. Right. Um, that's sort of up in the air. Depends on the skill set. But you're right. Hard, very hard to make everyone feel like they have. That they, that they felt at a moment like they were the protagonist. It's more likely that a few people will feel that way. Yeah. You know. I think, that, I think you can make it so a lot of people feel like they're the protagonist. I think that the quality of their story experience is going to be significantly diminished. Mm. That there are so many things that are critical in the ability to have that journey. And I'm not talking hero's journey just talking the journey of a protagonist that don't just happen when everybody is their own protagonist Mm. 
But I also don't rule out the possibility that in the same way that video games used to be Pong, right. with two paddles and a little square ball that went boop, 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 boop. And now take a look at the shading and the three-dimensional and like all that stuff. And that's just in the course of a few decades. Yeah. So I think if we can get good interactive narrative where there's just one protagonist and that protagonist happens to be an unrehearsed participant, then I think we can start to go, cool, now how do we expand this to where there are two and five and 20? But when you learn to juggle, you don't start by juggling three balls. You start by juggling one in a way where you don't move your hands from their home positions. It makes you have to throw accurately. And once you can throw one ball accurately, you can do two balls a whole lot more easily. And I think it's a similar kind of thing with story, that once you can do it with one protagonist who is a participant that is crystal clear, totally works, now let's throw another ball in. Let's throw another ball in. Let's see how we start to make it so that this intersection with this character where they see themselves as a protagonist, but this other person is also their own protagonist. But in each of their worlds, they're seeing the other person as their contagonist or as their buddy. I think that we can do it, but first we have to do it well individually. You were just in Vegas. Yep. You stopped in here for a hot second. What's next for the Interactive Play Lab? Meaning, where are you going next? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am going to Maine, uh, where where I'm leading a a one-week intensive in improvisational, immersive, and interactive performance up in the woods of Maine. And it's gorgeous there. (laughs) And it's this great old barn that has been converted into a performance space. The people there are awesome. And uh, yeah, get to spend a, a whole week working with a group of people just on this on this work. Do you think we might get to you back in LA at some point? It's interesting this these past few days because I've been here now for a little over a week, and there are things that are starting to show up um, that could have that influence. I, I tend to pay attention to where there, where there is obvious need yeah. and where people go, we, we could use what you have. And I don't mean, oh, let's hire you. I mean, let me share what, what I do and what I know in ways that help you do what you most want to do. And if there is enough of that here, that... that could could be a possibility, yeah. Wherever wherever your wanderings take you, and I kind of love that you're out there, like the wandering sage of this <laughs> stuff. Um, I know that place will be lucky to have you there and, and teaching, particularly. I mean, that's 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 a lot to say after like what was like a three hour long workshop, but just sometimes things are, are fractal. Yeah, and you can see like, oh, I see the the outer surface here. I, I see where it's crystallizing. Like, my God, like there were there were people that, you know, weren't there today. Who I was just like, oh, this person and that person and that person. There's so many people that I want to make sure 
you know, spend some time, you know, using the techniques you've developed and, and discovered and exploring that. So I do hope we get you back here. I would like that very much. Yeah. Jeff Worth, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank our guest, Jeff Worth of the Interactive Play Lab. You can find the Interactive Play Lab at, I know this is going to be a shock, interactiveplaylab.com. No dashes, no dots other than the dot and dot com. All right, there. Um, yeah, uh, just, just, I'm, I'm really hoping, uh, I'm really hoping, uh, Jeff, uh, you know, spend some more time in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I enjoyed our time together and I can't wait to see what can happen. I just get, Oh, I get excited. You know, I get excited about the possibilities because the possibilities are endless. Um, I get excited about just all the different approaches, um, People think sometimes I, someone someone said to me at Midsummer, they was like, "Oh, you like this thing, you just don't like that thing." And I'm like, "Well, no, I like it all. I just don't like it when it's bad." Um, there's there's such good work out there, and there's so many good techniques, and there's so much there's so much just like precise work. I like precision. As sloppy of a brain as I have. My brain is sloppy. I live in synchronicity, man. Like I live in flow and that flow state, like you heard it at the top of the show. It just bing, 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 bing bounces around. So it's, it's both ironic and makes perfect sense that I love something that's well-designed. I love something whose design is so, it's why I'm an Apple fan, right? Like I, I just, I need that beauty of precise, simple design to become the springboard from which my crazy brain zaps off of. And there's just, just watching what Jeff's doing in terms of codifying and adapting and bringing this stuff together. It just gets me excited about this being the, the bones over the long term. And, and this is a guy who in like a Zen sense is egoless about it, right? Like he just cares about the work and, ah. Oh, I mean, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm never going to get to that Zen state. Like, I just know it. That's a, that's a character flaw of mine. Um, it's one I, I attempt to address whenever I can, but I know it's, it's, it's that, that gap in my vision. It's there. Um, but that's something to aspire to. Like I said, wandering sage, Jeff Worth. Um, thank you for being our guest. Uh, hey, there's, there's a lot to come. Uh, I got to go do that day job thing in just about uh, five minutes here. So uh, not much more time left for us in the week. Um, go see Kansas if you're in Los Angeles and you haven't signed up for it yet. Um, the, the trick is uh, patchwork and scarecrow tracks um, uh, are, are, are um, let's see. yeah, patchwork and scarecrow. There's another track too. Uh, are, those two definitely are like super easy to like fall in on. Uh, the, the blank track, the white track is definitely for, you know, anyone who like hasn't gone before, uh, it'll bring you up to speed on the lore. They, they take the time to do that, but I also think you can just dive right in if you want to. Um, the, the Ozma, uh, the, the black track, 
uh, is is it's it requires some special knowledge. Uh, I'm I'm that team. So like if you're like, oh, what's that about? Like like you can write me and I'll tell you the story. Um, and then uh, I think the hardest one is there's there's a, a track for Revolt. Uh, it's definitely a more it's a more puzzle based track. Like that whole thing has been about puzzles. Um, so that one's uh, has probably the highest barrier to entry. Um, it's it's a definitely an interesting experiment that they're doing because they've been doing this long form and like this is a culminating. But um, I would say treat it more like like the metaphor I came up with afterwards uh, that I haven't shared with anybody until this very moment, uh, and that's probably going to make in the review. So I'm plagiarizing myself like ahead of time. Is think of it like a new hope, right? Chapter five of the Kansas collection is the equivalent of episode four of Star Wars. You can jump in here. You can. It's okay. It's the middle of the story, but the relationships are very clear, and that's all you really need to know. Okay. Um, and the way it's set up for like the first half hour, like it will definitely reward you for like running around and asking questions. So like, do not be afraid. Like if you're that kind of person, you're going to be you're going to be absolutely fine. The kind of person likes to kind of like lean back and like get the story, you know, absorb you. Um, you might want to do a, a little bit of, uh, you know, checking with folks just to kind of catch up. But it doesn't take much because the performances are clean. They're clean. I mean that in like, you know, the, the music production sets like, yo, that's clean. Um, code switching. It's what I do for a living. All right, what do you need to know that's coming up? Spooky season's about to arrive. Uh, we're, we're racking up all kinds of stuff. Uh, Theater Macabre is spinning up uh, their, their hype machine, which is going to be cool. Um, really curious is what those boys are up to. Um, I think we'll get some insight relatively soon, i.e. Uh, we're booking a podcast right now. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a whole bunch of episodes in the can. Um, there's just, um, there's stuff from sea to shining sea, but, um, you know what? The sands of the hourglass have run out. Our time here this week is done. I also talked a hell of a lot at the beginning of the show. Sorry, Derek. Um, the, uh, <laughs> let's do, let's do the things we always do, which is let's, let's do the credits on this thing and wrap it up. But, but first, um, if somehow you listen to this show, I forgot to tell everybody, here, here's one, here's one. So you've listened this far and you want to you wanna get your friends listening to the show. And they're like, man, I listen to all my podcasts on Spotify. Is it on Spotify? We're on Spotify now. We're on Spotify. We should be in the Google Play Store. Um, we're definitely in iTunes. Uh, we've got RSS. So there is no excuse not to listen to the ravings of a madman once a week about immersive everything. All right? Speaking of immersive everything... Everything Immersive is that Facebook group. I don't like Facebook. Tough. We're all on Facebook. <laughs> we just live with it now, and you know it. Um, yeah, it's true. That's exactly how I feel about it. Um, it's a really useful resource. There's some great conversations going on in that group. We love the group. Everythingimmersive.com if you don't feel like typing in Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> just pretend it's not Facebook. Uh, Everythingimmersive.com, whoops, sorry, leads you to that. I just scratched all of your ears. If this is binaural sound, that would have been distressing or pleasurable, depending on how you're wired. Um, oh, shout out, uh, shout out to Melinda Lau, who is uh, just recorded something for the New York Times uh, about ASMR. So awesome. Um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, the little the little network map of my brain is totally opened up. What I'm trying to tell you to do, here's your call to action, all right? Very clear. 
If you're listening to the show and you're this far, you definitely like the show. So I'm saying right now, I need your help. Uh, I need your help to get the word out. So if there's an episode you really like, share that on your Facebook, share it on your Twitter, share it in email, tell your friends, convince people to like us on Facebook. It actually helps. Follow the Instagram account. The Instagram account is at no underscore proscenium. Um, hell, you can mute us if you want to, but just like follow us. Uh, uh, people, um, people pay attention to those numbers um, so much so that some, you know, some people are tempted to, you know, inflate the numbers. Uh, PR people are very savvy and they know the difference. Uh, it's something called engagement, but the, the thing to do is to get that up organically. So I'm saying we need your organic support. So please follow us everywhere. Share anything ye old like and share. It really makes a difference. All right. Facebook, we're no proscenium. Twitter, we're no proscenium. Instagram, we're no underscore proscenium. Everything Immersive is the Facebook group. It is our largest platform by far. Join it if you haven't. Convince your friends to join it. Comment in there. Like things. Share stuff from there that you think is valuable. Um, This is a ridiculous, ridiculous attention economy that we live in, and you help people out a lot when you do it. And if we can bring people back, particularly on Facebook, if we can bring them to Everything Immersive, they will see more stuff. So if you're a a producer and you're like, I'm working on my show and I'm totally focused on my show and my show's going to be in two months and I don't want to do anything, if your friends have a show, if there's a show that looks interesting to you, share that with your community out of everything immersive, get your community going to everything immersive. Then when you post in everything immersive, they're even more likely to see it in everything immersive. This is just the algorithm. This is just how to play the game. All right. Everything immersive this week is what happens at the website, nopersinium.com. That's where we uh, kind of collect the best stuff from the week. Uh, we do that with our friends at room escape artist, who are also our co-admins over at, um, everything immersive. And uh, you can always send us um, your pitches if you have a show coming up anywhere in the world. Pitches at noprocinium.com. We also have our Airtable uh, form, which uh, we'll plug back out. We plug back out relatively regularly on uh, the channels. Um, submit, submit, submit your stuff. The Airtable is the best way because then you you have all our questions in advance. And yes, we do have some rigorous questions because we want to make sure that we're connecting the right audience with your work because uh, not everything is for everybody and that's okay it is super okay to support all these crazy ventures patreon.com slash no we want to get up to 175 supporters asap even at a dollar a time i don't I do care about the money, but like I, I'm much happier now to get the backer numbers up because that just makes it easier for the next step. Uh, I mean, uh, yes, no, yes. Hi, I'm a schemer. Um, that's enough. It's way too much. It's everything. It's no proscenium every week. The music for no proscenium is by Chris Porter of the aforementioned Speakeasy Society. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Bradley Smith, Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Arthur Tubman, Ari Herstand, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. We are backed through the generous support of Meow Wolf. I'm Noah Nelson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>